Good morning. I'm so thankful to be here with you this morning. I know that um, you probably think that that's something I say in order to be able to um, turn to my Bible and get ready uh, in the morning, but, and that's partially true. It, it actually is true. But I want you to know that I say that every Sunday uh, because it's true. And um, you, I wish that some way, somehow, you could see what I see when I'm up here. Um, because the church is beautiful. It is, she is the bride of Christ. And she is redeemed and she is beautiful. So when I say I'm happy to be here, when I say I'm thankful for you, it's because I look out here and I see broken people who are needy and desperate. I see people who have put in hours and days and months and years of work into personal sanctification. I see people who love the Lord in a way that causes them to think differently about child rearing and think differently about their purposes, their own purposes in life. I see people who are humble, who know their needs, and who are dependent upon the Lord. And to me, that is beautiful. So when I say I'm happy to be up here, it's not just so I can turn in my Bible to the right page. It's not just so I can get my iPad ready to preach. It's because that is what I see. So I am so thankful for you. And while we are not quite there, and we will not be quite there until he returns, I still trust that because we are here, that we are on our way to there. So I would challenge you to keep going, to keep fighting, to keep trusting. Because friends, even the deepest struggles of your life, when we are pursuing him, when we are longing and desiring for him, even the deepest struggles that we have are beautiful to him. Will you pray with me this morning? And I think I can do it this morning, Blake. So, Lord God, you are so good. Matchless. Priceless. Perfect in all of your ways. And somehow, in your pre-existence, in your preeminence, in your divine power, you have called us by your glory and by your goodness to live holy and sanctified lives. You have called us to be children of the living God. Would you allow us, Lord, a glimpse every day of your goodness and your glory? Would you allow us, Lord, a, a glimpse every day of your radiance, your beauty, your nature, your image, so that we may follow you in the way that you have prescribed and in the way that is natural for everybody who has been redeemed by such a great God. Teach us from your word. Help us to understand that today we are beautiful because we are in Christ. Christ is God, and that is beautiful. Help us to understand and to follow, to be changed forevermore. We pray and ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Last week we began this look into a precious salvation, and I want to sort of finish off that idea of a precious salvation. Of course, that's never finished. We'll continue compounding on that, but what I, I want to finish that thought for verses 1 through 4 today. We discovered how precious our salvation is because it is given to us by a supreme Christ, that he is both Lord and God. We saw this in verses 1 and 2 of last week. He was not just a, a good man or a prophet, but he is God and he is the best of the prophets. He is the best of the priests. He is the best of the king. He, kings. He is before all things. By him all things were created. There is nothing that was created that was not created by him. And by him all things continue to exist. This is the great news. What a great foundation we have. This is the God we serve. Not some weak, distant, far off God. Not an idol that when we speak to him does not respond. A mute idol, Peter said. Or we see in 1 Corinthians. But a God who responds. A God who is present, active, and participatory in all things. This is great news. What a great foundation. What a great God. Another thing we have discovered last week is that we obtained our position in Christ through this great gift of faith. A faith that is, has given us equal standing with, with all believers because it has been given by the righteousness and through the righteousness of Jesus. If our faith was given to us by our own choice or by our own works, then there would be no way to understand it as equal. Because we all have different talents and abilities. We all have different strengths and different failings. But because our faith is given to us by and through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we can guarantee that we are on equal standing with Paul. We are on equal standing with the apostles. We are on equal standing with the first century church. We're on equal standing with the martyrs of, of before. We're on equal standards with the martyrs of now because... We are all in Christ, and Christ is God. So we have the same ability and the same power that existed in Paul and Peter as it pertains to our faith. Now, we're not all going to write books of the Bible, and we're not all going to uh, raise people from the dead and perform miracles. But as it pertains to our faith... As it pertains to our ability to grow in the image and likeness of Christ, we are all on the same footing. Again, because it is not dependent upon our ability, but because of the righteousness of Christ. I had a thought after the sermon, and I want to give it to you today. I'm going to give two thoughts that some of you might uh, kind of furl your eyebrows at, but it, it'll be okay. I'm right here probably. Whatever we think our limits are, whatever we see as our baseline of our ability, whatever we see as our, uh, our uh, excuse me, not our baseline, whatever we see as the maximum of our ability, whatever we see as our maximum of our uh, strength, I believe should be our baseline for what can be done in our lives. The reason I think this is because we believe in a supreme God who is above us, who is before us, who is mightier than us. So if what we can dream, if, if what we can dream is most likely done in our ability then there should be a level above our ability that can be accomplished through a God who is greater than us. I hope that makes sense to you. What I'm saying is this. What you think you can do is less than what you can actually do because Christ is greater than your imagination. He is greater than what you believe about yourself. Because we have Christ, he is greater than what we think we can accomplish. 
And I would say that what we, can, what we think we can accomplish, the greatest dreams we could possibly dream, could quite possibly be the minimum goal we should set our standards to. That's just the power that Christ has. And that is the standing to where he places us, to a standing of a faith that is unmatched, a faith that supersedes our thoughts about ourselves. We started discussing the gifts of our great salvation last week, and I informed you that there were three gifts that Christ gives us, and I believe only come from Christ. The first of those gifts was righteousness. The second of those gifts was grace. And the third was peace. Today I'm going to, because it wasn't, they weren't subpoints in my outline last week, I'm going to retroactively give you some subpoints for last week, and then we're going to add them to this outline. So I'm going to try to do that very clearly so that you can follow those things if you really love outlines. Let's read 1 Peter 2, 3 through 4. And we're going to just look at the gifts of Christ, and we're going to add one more gift today. First, Second Peter, I'm going to say 1 Peter a million times over the next couple of weeks. I'm just letting you know already. Second Peter, just be smarter than I am, okay? You don't have to correct me. Second Peter 1, 3 through 4. I probably messed that all the way up. Here we go. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from corruption, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. I think these verses are some of my favorite in all the Bible. Not only do we hear about the precious and great promises of belonging to Christ, we are encouraged by the fact that we have the power and the ability to be like him. Verses 5 through 10 are going to give us some practical areas of sanctification with 5 through 7 giving us some imperatives, some commands for holy living. And 3 through 4 set up the thrust, the energy, the uh, motivation, the... um, stick to itiveness as my football coach would say, um, as to how we are empowered to live in the way that 5 through 10 call us to live. Verses 3 through 4 tell us a few awesome things. That those who know God have everything that they need for eternal life being one of the main things. We know this because of what verses 1 and 2 say about Christ. And it is the same Christ that does the calling on our life. He calls and equips us to this great work. This great work of becoming more like him. So all believers will grow in Christ because of Christ. Another thought you must grasp from 3 through 4 is that the more you grow as a believer, the more you understand the excellence and beauty of Christ. This is possible because the calling of Christ on our life is effective. If we belong to Christ, then over time, we will grow in the appreciation for his glory and moral excellence. I want to tell you, friends, there may be, there is a possibility that there is such a thing as a backslidden Christian, which makes me want to throw up in my mouth a little bit using that term. I'm just being honest with you. Backsliding is such a, such a weird term. But I'm going to use it because my vocabulary is very limited. There may be such a thing as a backslidden Christian, but there is no such thing as a casual Christian. There is no such thing as a lukewarm Christian. There is a Christian that is either progressing, albeit small, albeit majorly, but, or there is a Christian that is regressing, regressing, but there is no such thing as a casual Christian. Within these two groups, there are they're basically, so then basically I guess you should say, you could say that there are Christians and there are non-Christians. Within those two groups of Christians or non-Christians, I think there's four categories. There are those who will not possess a faith and are okay with it. These are like atheists and, and other people, just general non-Christians. They don't possess faith, they're fine with it. 
There are those who will not possess a faith uh, for various reasons. And um, maybe even they are using, maybe even they are pretending to have a faith, uh, but don't possess it. This is like false teachers. Many false teachers don't have a faith, but they use their faith for their own personal gain. There are those who possess faith, but uh, for lack of better words and a, and a strong vocabulary, they are, are backslidden or deceived. We're not going to get into the idea of false teachers here, but I believe that there are false teachers who are Christians. I know that sounds crazy. I'll expound on it later. I believe that there are some false teachers who are Christians because I think that, I think that Christians can be deceived into saying the wrong thing and even believing the wrong thing for a long time. Um. And which, by definition, makes you a false teacher. I believe that there are some false teachers, which, I, which is probably what Peter is talking about in chapter 2, who are just deceiving the church. But I believe that there are some false teachers who accidentally deceive by their own ignorance, by their own whatever. So there are people who claim Christ and don't walk like Christ. There are people who claim Christ and who go back to the old defilements of the world. Second Peter mentions that. We see that a little bit in Second uh, Peter two mentions that. We see that a little bit in Second Peter chapter one verse four. And then the fourth of category of those non Christians or Christians are those people who are maturing in their faith. Maturing doesn't mean not stepping backwards, right? There's all, there's every level of growth we have in our life, faith or not, there's always backward steps, right? You learn to walk and you fall a lot, right? A child is potty trained, but they still have accidents. There's always backward steps, but the measure for maturing is, are we progressing more than we're regressing. There's hope for the last two. There's hope for everyone, but there's hope for the last two because you have Christ and you can repent and you can make something of a faithful life. But the calling of Christ is effective. He will get who he chooses and he will not get those who are not supposed to be gotten. And I think Peter is thinking about these different categories as he is writing to the churches of, a, uh, of Asia Minor. I want to spend time today um, by looking at this last gift of Christ. Now, if you remember, point three last week was the gifts of Christ. Okay, so that's room number three. So for those who are taking an outline, A will be the gift of righteousness. The gift of righteousness. B will be the gift of grace. C will be the gift of peace. The gift of righteousness, the gift of grace, the gift of peace. And today, D will be the gift of knowledge. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. One of the greatest comforts I have as a Christian, is found in 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. I'm going to be honest with you, and as much as it may seem to the contrary, I am not a very confident person in myself. As a matter of fact, I've spent most of my life worrying about failing and often only taking on roles if I was certain that I knew that I wouldn't fail. Ironically, some of the biggest roles in my life that have been successful are those that there was no guarantee of success. Vintage Church was not a sure thing. Most of you understand our origin story. What you might not have known is, and maybe I've never expressed to any of you before, is that if I weren't neck deep in Vintage Church... At the time of our beginning, I probably would have never done this because I would have chosen the safe route. I would have chosen the, the easy route, the route that guarantees success. 
Vintage church wasn't a sure thing, but it is also one of the greatest pieces of my life. I made a Facebook comment to a beautiful girl around 15 years ago. This girl went on to stand me up a little bit later. When later she Facebooked me, I shot my shot again, even though it wasn't a sure thing. I, y'all know how that turned out, by the way, that was Anna, just in case you were thinking it was some random girl. I really only like sure things. I feel like it's been God's control and God's power in those two unsure things that have like helped me out through time. You know why I love this verse so much? Because Peter is saying that a life called by Christ is a sure thing. That our precious salvation is a sure thing. Not because of me or not because of you. With me or you, there is a bunch of doubt. As a matter of fact, doubt is a normal part of a Christian life, but it doesn't come from Christ. Doubt comes from ourselves. Doubt comes from our lack of understanding or our lack of belief in what Christ is doing. So doubt that we can overcome our present issues. Doubt that we are in the right place. Doubt in God himself is probably mostly normal in many cases, but it is not because of Christ, because Christ is a sure thing. It is because we either have yet to see it or yet to believe in the surety of Christ and his working in our life. Our precious salvation is a sure thing. Peter says you have everything you need for life and godliness. There is nothing like that assurance. It's not like getting that great toy at Christmas where you get it and you realize that on Christmas Day you can't use it because batteries are not included. Not only is the gift great, but the energy, the batteries are included in his great gift of salvation. So we ask ourselves then, how do we know that this salvation is a sure thing and that Bryce is not just uh, over-exaggerating or overselling this? How do we know that it's a sure thing and what are its effects? The first way we know that our salvation is a sure thing, this is the knowledge that you must have. This is what comes from the gift of knowledge. The first thing we know is his divine power. We know that our salvation is a sure thing because of his divine power. Peter says his divine power has granted us, has gifted us all things. Whose divine power? That is Jesus' divine power. Jesus' divine power has granted us all things. This is his dynamis. The word dynamis is where we get the word dynamite. His dynamic power, his explosive Power, his changing power has granted us. Who are the us? <coughs> the us here refers to Peter. It refers to Paul. It refers to the apostles. It refers to the first century church. It refers to the readers at Asia Minor. But it also refers to all believers throughout all of history. His divine power has granted us. The gospel is a sure thing because of his divine power and what it has granted us. It is the Lord Jesus Christ's divine power that has granted us everything we need. The gospel calls his divine power the power of God unto salvation. 1 Corinthians says that his divine power is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who believe, it is the power of God. 2 Corinthians says it is the power that is perfected when we are weak, when we realize our weakness, when we submit to him, when we surrender to him, and we trust in him, it is perfected in us. That it is better to have the power of Christ and to be weak otherwise than to trust in our own power and think we're strong but be weak. Peter said in 1 Peter that it is his power that protects us. It doesn't mean that we are safe 
because of his power. It means we are saved because of his power. Christianity is not safe. It is saving. Colossians says he is preeminent and the ruler and the head of all things. How do we know salvation is sure? How do we know it's a sure thing? It's because of his divine power. Only God can do what man, for man what man needed, and God did that through the God-man, Jesus Christ. Do you know how I know that my life is going to play out like God wants, and on some level, it is going to be walking toward him in faith relatively consistently for the rest of my life? Because his divine power has granted it to be true. And every believer has to have the same faith or you are walking in weakness. Every believer must have the same faith that his divine power has granted me to walk with him or you are walking in weakness. We know salvation is sure because the one who offers it is the only one who can and because he does. Why else? His divine power, his life and godliness. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What does his divine power give us? Everything that pertains to life and godliness. I believe Peter is saying that his divine power has given us life first. That is eternal life. And that the most vivid demonstration of eternal life is transformation. He is, excuse me, he has given us everything that we need for life. Eternal life. And the most vivid demonstration that we have eternal life is a transformed now. Yes. So his divine power has granted us eternal life and a lifelong pursuit of becoming Christ-like. You might wonder why I see that as a sign of the surety of salvation. Well, I'm glad you asked. Because godliness is necessary for faith to be true. Transformation is necessary for faith to be true. Faith without works is dead. Therefore, godliness is not a demonstration of your faithfulness to God, but of God's faithfulness to himself. The reason transformation is necessary and it is a sure sign of the surety of salvation, of our salvation in Christ, is because godliness is not a sign of our faithfulness to God. It is a sign of God's faithfulness to himself. When he consumes a life, when he takes over a life, he transforms a life, and that pattern continues until he returns and perfects all of us. In order for our faith to be real, there must be these two characteristics. Eternal life confirmed by a transformed life. Can I encourage you in this? One of the surest evidence of Christ in your life is not a perfect life. It's not an orderly life. It's not a life that lacks chaos. It is a life that is being progressively transformed into the image of our Savior. That thought can be discouraging to some because if there is no change from the point of salvation, then there is no salvation. Can I tell you, I don't mean this to be harsh, and I think that most of you in here are redeemed and understand what repentance is and understand what transformation is, but can I tell you just in case... If there is no change followed by continual transformation, then there is no salvation. No matter how many tears filled your eyes as you walked the aisle, no matter how you felt as you were dipped in the baptismal waters, listen, not even concerning how many people confirm your salvation in you, the confirmation in your salvation is transformation. Yes, it's a public display in some ways, but also 
we know that true character is what happens when no one else is, is looking. A transformation in our own personal life, in our own heart. A new heart. The reason that transformation is a certain aspect of salvation is because His divine power has granted it to us. And there is nothing that His divine power wants that His divine power does not get. And I've said this to you in a Mississippi sort of way before, and I'll say it again. But if you get hit by a Mack truck and you live to to talk about it, you understand that dynamic power. Your life has completely changed. Your life has completely changed. A a more pertinent one for me is I have been shocked, S-H-O-C-K-E-D, many times while messing with electrical. Most recently, I was at one of our houses in Coldwater, and I was putting in a dishwasher. And I was certain that the power was off because I checked the breaker. And guess what? The power was not off. By the way, use your right hand if you're ever messing with electrical because your heart, it goes straight to your heart. I was using my right hand here. And I hit the, the hot wire on the metal part of the dishwasher, and I was touching the dishwasher. And I felt it go whoop to my feet. And not like it didn't, you know, it was not going to kill me more than likely. There was nobody there to help me, so Maybe. Um, I felt it go from my hand to my feet. Do you know what that does to a person? I I went home. I just went right home. (laughs) I was like, you know what? Let's try again later. Next time I'm just going to shut off the power to the whole entire house. Let's try again later. Because you know when you feel that power, you know that electricity can be dangerous, right? Right? But when you feel that power, you understand just how dangerous it really is. On the positive side of that, you know and understand the power of God. But when you feel that power, and that power indwells you, when it is the motivation to get up and do the will of God every day, when it is the motivation to disciple your children and to, and to discipline your children in a way that is really annoying to you and is troublesome for you and causes you a burden. When it is your motivation to endure with a spouse who is being unloving or to be loving regardless of, regardless of the circumstances. When it's your motivation to get up for work when you hurt or when you're tired or when your boss doesn't uh, appreciate you then you understand its power. That power has, is one of the reasons why I am certain, why I am certain that my salvation is sure, that your salvation is sure. Because when that dynamic force hits you, you are changed. This is the second statement that someone in here is going to hate. And if I ever get famous and someone comes and tries to find something to critique me by, this will be something. Everybody, hold on to your chair. Wouldn't it be nice if we lived in such a way? If we followed Christ in such a way and we had enough time that at the return of Jesus, our character wouldn't need much perfecting? Wouldn't it be nice? And I'm not saying that we can be perfect. You know we can't. But I feel like that was Paul's goal. He's like, though I haven't attained it, I still press on so that when I meet Jesus, there's not much work for him to do in my character. I want to tell you, friends, the goals you set for yourself And the things you think that you can do in Christ or outside of Christ are the very minimum that you will go. So you better set some lofty goals. 
I was talking to Tony about this on Friday. We do a relatively difficult workout almost every Friday when, when everything is normal life. And um, I'm not one to complain, but I was joking about how my, what I say at the workouts is not complaining. It's just expressing my feelings. It really sounds a lot like complaining. Like when I say, I hate you for this and stuff like that. Not Tony, but just the, in general, myself, whatever. But something that Tony and I started discussing was that the way you think about that workout will hinder or will increase your ability to complete it. When I go in there and I think, oh my gosh, this is going to be so hard. Step-ups again. I do not want to do step-ups again. I'd like to fill my heart at a normal pace, not like it's in my head or my feet. If you go in there thinking negatively about things, then you go in there hindered in your ability to complete the task. I want to say to you, friends, it's not far off for believers. I don't believe that you can manifest things. I think that's a bunch of bull. I don't believe that you can speak things into existence. That's not how things work. But I do believe, I do believe that your perspective on things changes the way you operate. So if you are struggling finding a consistent upward trajectory, maybe your perspective on what we have in Christ needs to be upped just a little bit. Maybe you need to turn the dial up just a little bit as to what we have in Christ. His divine power. Dynamis. Dynamite. We like to use this around here, but the same, it's in the Bible, so it's okay. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. His life and godliness the reason it's a sure calling is because the reason it makes our calling sure is because we're going to live like him if we're changed by him. His divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. A third reason why I'm sure of my salvation and why you should be too, this great salvation, is his calling. His divine power has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. There's a usage of this word knowledge here. It, the word is epinosis. It's, uh, the Greek word is epinosis. Uh, it's used to mean an encounter with Jesus and everything after that that changes us. Everything we need for life and godliness is, is found in this supernatural encounter with Jesus. With his supernatural power and ability. Peter says, the knowledge of him who called us. Peter used the word kalisantos for, for calling, which means effective awakening. As in creating faith. You see the same word used in Romans 8.20. And those who he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Romans 9.24-26 says, Even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Something you must be sure about. People might say, well, God calls you, but you must accept his calling. Uh, like, I would call you and you would come over to me. I want to tell you, those people are wrong. They are either choosing to be wrong or they are willfully ignorant, uh, I guess, which is choosing to be wrong, or they just haven't seen the truth. The word here for call is not like me saying, hey, Blake, come here, and me wondering if Blake will actually, he's probably not going to unless I'm like from here, whether, wondering whether or not Blake's going to come on stage. The, what, the word for calling is the act of a completed work. It's not just 
come over here, non-Christian, to the, to the light side. You're in the dark side. Come to the light side. It is, hey, you are coming. You are coming. Done. Completed work. Effective. Awakening. Creating faith. It's not, an, it's not an invitation, but something that is done for us. It is sure. Is it effective? 1 Peter 2.9 says, His calling and, effect, uh, and effective, it's effective to the point of conversion. Remember 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you, have, that you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness and into marvelous light. The God who made light out of darkness with his own words has called us out of darkness and into marvelous light, and it is done. Creation didn't say, but wait, Lord. I will receive your calling, and I will allow you to create light out of nothing. Creation heard the voice of God, and there was light, and it was good. And the same God that called light out of darkness has called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. What has he called us to? Has he called us to a life of subpar living and mediocrity? No. As if we needed that answer, right? Look at verse 3. Who has called us... To his own glory and excellence. Christ opens our eyes to see his moral excellence and his divine beauty. And that excellence and beauty become more and more attractive to the believer over time. Listen, I love the Bible. It is the inerrant, infallible word of God. I believe it is the way we hear how God speaks to us today. But if you told me that some of the manuscripts had been uh, forged, or if you told me that some of the proofs had been taken away, that the Bible is what it is, I would still believe. I might take a step back or two, but I would still believe. If someone told me that there was DNA evidence that Paul didn't exist or John was never at Patmos, I would still believe. If you all fell away tomorrow, I would, I would still believe, but I would take that as a sign that I shouldn't be pastoring. So I would just join another church. Do you know why? Because I don't believe because of the proofs of God. I believe because of his divine beauty and his excellence. I believe because every Christian has been revealed to them the beauty, the glory and the moral excellence of God. While I understand those through the Bible better, I see those every day in my own life. I see those in your life. I see those in the life of the church, in creation, and the hope that we have to come. The more we grow in Christ and that calling, the less apt we are to love him for the things that he can do and the more apt we are to love him for himself. And the more we are drawn to the beauty and moral excellence of Christ, the more we desire to follow in his footsteps and be like him. As a matter of fact, the reason Peter wrote this was because false teachers in verse 2 or chapter 2 of 2 Peter were teaching moral anarchy. They were teaching moral anarchy. They were teaching that it is impossible to be like God, so you might as well not try. And Peter is saying it is impossible to be exactly like God, but he has given us the power. He has given us everything that we need to be like him in the way that he has prescribed. So we might as well pursue him. And the motivation for us is his moral excellence and his divine beauty. That, dynam that dynamic power that gives us the strength and the ability to follow him. That calling that is sure. It's an awakening. It's an effective change. I want to give you one more thing and we'll be done. His nature. 
is why I'm certain of my salvation and you should be certain of yours if you belong to Christ. His nature, look at verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Not only do we have everything we need that pertains to life and godliness, but believers inherit God's promises when we come to Christ. Some of those promises is that we have Christ. We have salvation. We have sanctification. We have peace with God. We have peace in our lives of God. We have grace upon grace. We have eternal life and many, many more. Another one of those promises is we have a participation, a participation in God's divine nature through Christ Jesus. 1 John says that when he appears, we will be like him. That one day we will live in perfected bodies. We will not be divine, but we will be perfect. We will be much like God, morally perfect and pure. But even now we see all throughout the New Testament, even now believers share in the divine nature of Christ. And that divine nature is changing us, ever changing us into the image of Christ. So there's this constant idea. We partake in his divine nature. We are already there, but not quite there. There's this constant idea in every believer. I'm already there. I'm already redeemed. I'm already experiencing the blessings and the gifts of belonging to Christ. I'm already experiencing his divine power. I have everything that I need on this earth for life and godliness. I have his calling. I'm already there, but I'm not quite, not quite there. One day we will be. His divine nature we share in, and it is changing us into His image. We are His, and we possess His divine nature already, but we do not possess it in the way we fully will. But one day we will. Here's why I believe His divine nature shows the surety of our salvation, and I got some of this from Warren Wiersbe's commentary. Because nature determines desire. Nature determines desire. A pig won't slop. And Second Peter tells us that even a dog goes back to his own vomit in its nature. But a sheep wants green pastures. Nature determines desires. What we desire and what we long for is determined by our nature. If we are strictly human nature, then what we desire will be human nature. But if we have a new nature, if we are a new creation, then on some scale, hopefully a large scale, what we desire will be like Christ and his desires. Like the sheep desires green pastures. Nature determines desires. Nature also determines behavior. An eagle flies, a dolphin swims, animals, carnivores hunt for their own food, birds gather. Nature determines behavior. If we have a human nature, strictly human nature, our behavior will reflect a human nature. If we have a godly nature, a divine nature, our nature will reflect, our behavior will deflect a, reflect a divine nature. Nature determines environment. A fish lives in water. A squirrel climbs trees. If we have a human nature, we will surround ourselves with a human nature type environment. If we have a divine nature, our, while we are in this world, we are definitively not of this world. Our environment will be modeled by, mostly by Godliness and goodness and truth. Now, we will be in situations at our work and with our friends that we're trying to minister to where we will not model those things necessarily, but mostly the things we place ourselves in, the things we engross ourselves in. Friends, these uh, sort of dichotomies should scare you a little bit or it should give you some, a ton of peace. 
If our nature, if we're finding out that we, our nature, our environment, our, our, our behavior, that our position uh, is, is human or humanistic, that should scare us a little bit. Maybe, we, maybe we're a believer and we need to repent and believe the gospel and, and transform our nature, conform our nature to the image of God. Maybe we need to be saved. Our nature determines desire. Our nature determines behavior. Our nature determines environment. Our nature determines association. A lion travels with a pride, a sheep with a flock. Our nature determines our association. What does your association say about the nature that dominates you? If nature determines appetite and we have God's divine nature, then we should have an appetite for what is good and not for vomit, not for slop, not for disassociation disenfranchisement not for loneliness not for separation but for unity with the body a lion with its pride a sheep with its flock and we should live spiritually conducive lives that model the divine nature of God the reason God's divine nature is a sure sign of the confidence of our salvation is because nature determines the outcome of our actions. His divine calling, His life and godliness, His divine nature. I mean, His divine power, His life and godliness, His calling, His divine nature. I'm sure of my salvation, friends. Not because of me. But because on some level, I see this. And you can be sure of your salvation too. Not because of you. But because on some level, you have the knowledge, the epinosis, the sure understanding of his, call, of his power, his life and godliness, his calling, and his nature. Pray with me. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for you, God. We're so thankful for the knowledge of your Son who gives us everything that we need to life, for life and godliness. Help transform our mind towards that, our lives towards that. Help our minimum, help our maximum be the starting point, Lord, of how we follow you. We love you, Lord. We praise you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.